Hi, I'm Copthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled, What is Wisdom? Part 2. The content is adapted from Chapter 1 of my book, Toward Wisdom. In Part 1, I discussed three characteristics of wisdom. In this episode, I discuss two more, the realization of oneness and behavior that benefits others. First, the realization of oneness. For a long time now, there have been small groups of people who saw some form of unity that most others could not see, or at least could not internalize to the point where it motivated their actions. Several of these unitive perspectives relate to the world of form and function. One is rooted in being itself. Among the information-based form and function unities is the unity of human psychology. I experience fear and hatred and jealousy. So does every other human being. Seeing this can eventually lead to a unity of compassionate understanding. Our unskillfulness and outdated programming unite us, as does our potential for wisdom. The evolutionary view of what is going on in the universe points to another form and function unity, the unity of process, a unity based on the physical interdependence that permeates the entire cosmos. In this view, the whole universal process is one entity. We humans are localized, aware nodes of that process. My physical body is not a process unto itself, a closed system. It is an open system, an intrinsic part of a much larger physical process. It is a subsystem in a process that includes the biosphere, the sun, and in fact, the entire universe. This is a solid, tangible unity based on the physical reality of our existence. Then there's the unity of biological kinship. Not only do all humans belong to one species, but we are in some sense related to every other living thing. The twist of all DNA is in the same direction, one of two equally possible directions. This indicates to many scientists that all plant and animal species descended from a single early cell. Then, too, the chemistry of all life forms is the same. Every organism in the diverse biological world was constructed using just a few standard chemical building blocks. Some of the wisest people have seen a primal being-based unity. This unity is the unity that the perennial philosophy would have us see, the unity dealt with in the mystical traditions of both East and West, the unity of transcendence, of Maslow's farther reaches. It is an intuition-based type of holistic seeing. Coming to see this unity requires an intuitive shift of vantage point and ultimately of identification. The world observed by these people is the same world that everyone else sees. Nothing external has changed. But they suddenly see that reality in a new context. They see in the data of life a meaning that wasn't evident before. Involved here is what we might call an intuitive version of the perceptual gestalt flip. The gestalts that most psychology books discuss are visual gestalts. We might look at a set of black marks on white paper and say, that's a face. It's not really a face, of course, 
but our brain has conjured up a face gestalt from the arrangement of marks. Or, as usually happens when we look out the window, we attend to our visual field not as a single field of varying color and light intensity, but as a collection of gestalts, a collection of separate things. We're all familiar with drawings of objects that can be seen in more than one way. I recall one such drawing. At first glance, I abstracted from it subjective reality number one, an attractive young woman seated at a dressing table looking at herself in the mirror. Then my perception did a flip, and I saw the same pattern of black marks on the paper as the image of a skull, subjective reality number two. Which subjective reality truly represented the objective reality? Both did. But each was an incomplete representation. The drawing itself, the objective reality, contained both a skull aspect and a seated woman aspect. Both of the conscious experiences were valid, accurate, but incomplete analogs of the objective reality, the drawing itself. Most introductory psychology texts include drawings that produce this gestalt flip phenomenon. Typical pictures are a vase that can be seen as two faces, a stairway that can be seen as a ceiling cornice, and a young woman that flips to an old woman. Each is a drawing that can be viewed in two completely different and mutually exclusive ways. The point here is that it's possible to have gestalt flips of conception and intuition as well as perception. Profound insights often involve a flip from one conceptual interpretation to another, or one intuitive sense of things to another. The old way of seeing the reality is still an option, and perhaps valid for certain purposes. But there is now a second way. It was always there. Others had seen it and might have told us about it. But we hadn't seen it for ourselves. Then one day, flip. In a fraction of a second, we switch perspectives. We find ourselves still looking at the same old data, but we now see those data in a dramatically different way. We experience another valid and sometimes more significant way of understanding what is. People who have flipped to the universal wisdom or perennial philosophy perspective report that existence involves two different kinds of reality. One is a transient, fragmented surface reality, which most of us mistakenly take to be the reality. The other is an eternal, enabling oneness, which these people realize is our true nature and identity, our deepest, truest self. For millennia, insightful people have been beating about the bush of truth, trying to express this realization clearly in words. Here in the paragraphs that follow, I will attempt to do that once again, this time using language concepts and metaphors of our present information age. Psychologist Maslow referred to being, but in doing so, he was an exception among scientists. Being is not something that scientists normally talk about. Scientists talk about phenomena. It is philosophers and spiritual teachers who have talked about being. The ancients spoke of being and existence, essence and form, the unconditioned and the conditioned, spirit and manifestation. 
Later, Kant spoke of noumenon and phenomenon in a similar way. The general sense of those who used these terms was that being, essence, the unconditioned, spirit, noumenon, was ungraspable but eternal, primary yet unknowable. It was the real. In contrast, existence, form, the condition, manifestation, phenomena, was knowable yet transient, ephemeral, even illusory. It was the unreal. When I first encountered this sort of thinking years ago, I brushed it aside as irrelevant metaphysical hogwash. What could be more real than phenomena? Later, when I began to find science's answers less than complete, I asked myself why these two groups of serious, sincere people were talking past each other. Sages and philosophers, after all, are reality seekers. Scientists are reality seekers, too. Both groups are interested in what is, and both groups comment on it. Yet the two groups have historically described the same reality differently. Why is that? The reason eventually dawned on me. Science and philosophy approach reality with different aims and with different questions in mind. The two groups do deal with the same reality, but they don't get the same answers because they don't ask the same questions. They subject the data to different interpretive frameworks, and this results in different, though not necessarily incompatible, descriptions of reality. Our modern-day concepts of medium and message helped clarify the situation for me. Science has declared its chief interest to be the study of physical phenomena, And these phenomena involve both a permanent medium-like aspect and a transient message-like aspect. The medium is energy. The message is the space-time patterning of that energy. It's informational configuration as specific forms of energy, varieties of matter, and the relationship of these to each other. For most scientific purposes, nothing would be gained by splitting a phenomenon into its medium and message aspects. It would not help answer scientific questions. It would have no explanatory value within that context. The philosopher and the spiritual seer occupy the same world of phenomena in which the scientists live. But they do find value in making a distinction between phenomena's temporary and permanent aspects, seeing that phenomena have both an eternal medium aspect and a transient message aspect does have explanatory value within a philosophical-slash-spiritual context. This perspective gives better answers to questions that involve meaning, and it illuminates the eternal. It gives us a view that takes us beyond the usual scientific view without in any way negating it. From the medium message perspective, scientific truth and philosophical or spiritual truth are seen to be non-conflicting subsets of a more complete truth. The medium message model also applies to mental reality. Here the underlying medium is pure awareness, sentience, subjectivity, the ground of mind. The mental message is mind content in its many forms, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, imaginings, all of them being informational modulations of awareness. 
modulations created in human beings by the pattern firing of brain neurons. Concepts like medium, message, and information, as they are currently understood, were not common currency even a few decades ago, let alone in ancient times. In the past, words like being, essence, spirit, and form were the best terms available for getting an intellectual grip on the perennial philosophy view of reality. Today, the new terms and concepts enable those who understand them to get even closer to the heart of the perennial philosophy view. The information age explanation goes like this. Existence involves the interpenetration and interaction of three strata or realms or types of reality. Energy, awareness, and information. Energy and awareness are media, or more probably two aspects of one medium. Information is message. Energy and awareness are the grounds from which existence springs, the paint and canvas. Information is the content, the brushstrokes, the emerging pattern. Energy is the eternal ground of all physical existence and the active principle behind all change. Awareness is the ground of all mental existence. Information is the evanescent, space-based, time-based, always-changing overlay which is form and content for the other two, creates the mental-physical drama of existence. Pure formless energy is the cosmic modeling clay, the medium which is overlaid with informational patterns, with form, to become the objective universe. Pure contentless awareness is the medium of subjective experience. Interfaces with informational patterns of energy difference that wave or modulate awareness, creating mind content and the phenomenon we call mind. Information, form, pattern, difference is that third element. Information is the abstract organizing matrix that lies at the root of any expression in any medium. It is the organizing principle embodied in the blueprint of a building and in the building itself. It is the sameness to be found in a book written in English and in its French translation. In information theory, this abstract organizing matrix is seen to be a matrix of differences. Gregory Bateson defined the elementary unit of information as, quote, a difference which makes a difference. Information is the array of significant differences that defines form. Differences in position, differences in time, differences in color, intensity, pressure, texture. Differences of any kind signify information. Information is knowledge in the abstract, disembodied knowledge. It is there in the concept and the physical structure that embodies the concept. It is there in the motion and in the equations that describe that motion. The same information exists in the imagination of the composer, the musical score, the performance, the wavy groove of the vinyl record, the electrical signal going to the loudspeaker, the sound in the room, the vibrations of the eardrum, the pattern of neuronal firings in the brain, and the subjective perception of the sound. The universe is a display, a composition, a work, 
wrought in the primary media of expression. It is an ongoing media event, an ever-changing information and reformation of energy, exhibiting and enjoying a vast variety of phenomena, effects, and characteristics. From the standpoint of energy, the universe is a giant physical process, a system of systems, a megasystem or suprasystem. From the standpoint of awareness, it is a mosaic of thought processes, a megathought or suprathought. From either standpoint, it is an informational construct, a molding, a forming, a dynamic patterning of the two-faceted ground of being, energy awareness. It would be foolish to deny the reality of our physical existence or call it an illusion. But there is a difference between the reality of form and specific function and the reality of the underlying interpenetrating ground of being that makes form and function possible. I might give you a lump of modeling clay having some shape and ask, which is real, the clay or its shape? The reality of the shape exists until you squish the thing in your hands and make another shape. But the reality of the clay itself remains unchanged. The perennial philosophy view holds that our true self and being inheres in the cosmic modeling clay. The body-mind's earthly existence inheres in the temporary shape, the temporary systemic pattern into which the clay has been molded. Cosmic modeling clay is more sophisticated, of course, than the stuff kids play with. It is energized and can mold itself. In that respect, it is more like yeasty bread dough than passive clay. The yeast within a lump of dough is active. In creating bubbles of gas, it gives microscopic texture and macroscopic form to the loaf. The dough, in rising and baking, develops an intricate informational structure. The original dough is still there, but no longer as a homogeneous lump. The dough's active principle, the yeast, has been at work creating an informational labyrinth. The only physical reality is still the dough, but an informational reality has also come into existence, the bread's texture and overall shape. The universe behaves similarly as it evolves. Guided by the entire matrix of natural law, the universe, like a giant lump of rising dough, acquires form. Being, however, is more than just its energy and awareness aspects. It is also the realm of potential and potential actualizing process. It is the pregnant void, void of form or information, but the source of all form, capability, and wisdom. Being has the potential to clothe itself in a bewildering variety of informational patterns. And the universe is rigged so that this will happen. The cosmic algorithms that define the laws of nature work together to actualize potentials whenever they can be actualized. This results in a general tendency for something to happen rather than nothing. The universe has a built-in yes. It is intrinsically adventurous. Energy says yes and does. Awareness says yes and experiences. 
Those who deeply internalize the perennial philosophy perspective experience a shift in identification. Their former primary identification as a person is replaced by a new primary identification as being itself. Identification as a person remains an option and is useful in everyday circumstances. But they can flip to their new vantage point at will. From that vantage point, they see themselves as being. To use my terminology, they see themselves as energy acting to up-level the informational process and awareness enjoying the perception of it. Making the shift of identification does not happen easily. Although we are surrounded by evidence of the unity, very few are ready to see it. Our biocomputer brains are currently programmed to believe in a personal self, and our whole personal survival, pleasure-seeking orientation comes out of that belief. Gut-level acceptance of oneness means gut-level disidentification with a smallest self, and most people are not ready for that. In later chapters of Toward Wisdom, I explore this identification issue more deeply. The final characteristic of wisdom I'd like to discuss is behavior that benefits others. Wise people live their daily lives in accord with wise perspectives and wise values. As a result, their actions make the world around them a better place. They help others to grow. They live compassionately. They resolve conflicts and in other ways maximize harmony and general well-being. If their own growth and wisdom is carried to the point where identification with being takes place, they stop differentiating between themselves, the universe, and what needs to be done. At that point, they see themselves and the rest of humanity as being itself, evolving and living progressively higher values. As Maslow pointed out, when you see clearly what is, you automatically know what to do. Reality, in other words, has its own ethical imperatives. These ethical musts become obvious when the mind becomes quiet, when the clear truth about what needs to be done is not obscured by personal wants, fears, and dislikes. Wise people are able to sense ethical imperatives and act on them because intuition and intellect, working as coordinated partners, now run the show. What to do becomes clear under these conditions. So does what not to do. Wise people not only work to up-level the process, they refuse to commit their time and energy to the unhelpful. That ends the take on the nature of wisdom, which I presented in Chapter 1 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at, I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.